as you're making your way to your seat, I want to let you know that we are giving each of you, and actually if we could get a couple of folks who would hand these out, if you don't already have, this is um, the ESV Illuminated Scripture Journal of the book of James. So it's got the entire book of James in it and space for you to take notes, uh, journal thoughts as we go through James uh, this fall. So there's plenty of them for all of you who are here. Take one with you if you want to go get one right now. They're back there. And um, in our guests, there's take one with you. We've got plenty. And we'll just keep giving them away until they're all gone in, in the next few weeks. But we just started last week uh, in chapter 1 of James. So if you'll turn there with me, we will continue. And I'm actually going to... Uh, Pray first, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, preserving it for us. Thank you for having James write these words in a letter to brand new followers of Jesus who were uh, scattered and... um, learning to live a new life in Christ in a new place and under persecution and through hardship. And I pray that you would use the words that James has for us today, that your spirit has for us today, to encourage us, to strengthen us for all endurance and patience with joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you do if on a Friday afternoon, your boss calls you and tells you that there have been budget cuts and your position has been terminated? You're getting two weeks severance, but you're done today. And you have no idea how you're going to pay rent next month. What do you do? What do you do when you've made it through three life-threatening medical diagnoses in the last several years, and you finally think, okay, now it's time to rest and get stronger. But a month later, after the last thing is done, you have a heart attack. And a week later, you have triple bypass open-heart surgery. (coughs) and now you seem to be set back even further than you were when when all these things began. What do you do? What do you do when you're in conflict with a family member or a friend again? It just doesn't seem to end. Just when you think you're making making progress and enjoying some level of peace with this person, Something sets them off, something sets you off, and here we go again with the war of words. What do you do? 
Now, James talks about various trials. These three scenarios are various trials that I'm aware of just this week that folks are dealing with. And they're actually very similar to some of the various trials that James mentions in his letter as we'll go through. He talks about relational conflict. He talks about financial hardship. He talks about um, physical illness and suffering. So what do you do when you encounter trials like these or maybe not like these, but the ones you're dealing with now? Last week, we learned that James says what you do is you count it all joy. You count it all joy when you face various trials, James says. We said last week that James is saying you put trials in the credit column, not the debit column. You see them as something that you gain, not merely as something you lose, even though you may lose some things. James said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, and this is how you can count it all joy, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James commands Christians to see the hard things that happen to them as something to be happy about. He's not saying, again, I'll say it clearly, he's not saying enjoy the pain. Be happy about hurting. But he's saying that that they should rejoice in what the pain will produce in them over time. It will produce a steadfastness that waits on the person who will use that pain for his purpose. It, it produces an endurance that watches for what God is doing to purify and fortify and beautify their relationship with him, their faith. To perfect and complete all that is lacking in the work he's doing to make them like his son Jesus. And I, I hear you, James, and I say... That sounds so good and right, James. I I really want to do that. I want to count the hard things in my life as occasions for happiness, happiness in God and in his purposes. But James, you don't understand how much it hurts. I want to think the way you're saying I should think, but I, I just can't. It hurts too much. And James continues in his letter with an answer to that cry of the soul in verses 5 through 8. So would you stand with me as we read and hear James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. James, still talking about trials, goes on and says, if, you, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, 
unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So, yes, James, I want to see that our trials are occasions for joy. I want to see God at work in me through my troubles, but sometimes the hurt is so intense and the hardships go on for so long that I lose focus, I get numb, and if I'm honest, I don't see God at work in my trials sometimes. And if I'm even more honest, I don't even see him at all in some of my trials. And if I'm really, really honest, sometimes, and this is the worst, sometimes I blame him for the trials and accuse him. So there are some trials, James, that I, I, I just, I can't count as joy. So tell me, James, what am I missing? What, what, what do I need? And James says, I hear you, and I want to help you. And that's why he's writing this letter, because he knows the people who are receiving this letter are going to struggle with some of the trials, and they're going to struggle to count them as joy as he's instructed them to do. So in verses 5 through 8, he answers two questions for us about our trials. And those are the questions we'll address this morning. He answers the question, what do we need in the middle of our trials, and then how do we get it, okay? Very simple. James is very clear and simple, although these verses have stumped me for a while, and I learned things about these verses that I didn't know. I think I have been thinking of them wrongly, so let's see if maybe you can join me in having James correct your thinking as well. First of all, what do we need? What do we need? Well, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, we need wisdom. James says, this is what you're missing. If you're going to count your trials as occasions for joy, you need wisdom. <laughs> now, when we hear James say we lack wisdom, we, we, at least I tend to think, now hold on, James, are you saying I'm stupid? But James, just be sure, James is not talking about IQ here. He's not talking about your intelligence. We have to remember, again, that the people that James originally wrote this letter to uh, were Hebrews who were now following Jesus as their Messiah. And they had been scattered from Jerusalem uh, to all kinds of other places because of persecution because they followed Jesus, their fellow Hebrews were persecuting them for believing that Jesus was the Messiah and following him as their rabbi. And so they were spread out. And they're suffering trials because of these things. But these folks, they're good Jewish folks, just like James. They were steeped in the Hebrew wisdom of the Old Testament. In Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, the Psalms, the Law and the Prophets, this stuff flows through their veins. So when they hear the word wisdom, they think of something different than we tend to think about. It's actually true that people with a low IQ can be very wise, biblically wise. And it's also true 
that people who have the highest of IQs can be fooled. So what is, what is this wisdom? These people know what James is talking about. They know what true wisdom is, but we need to catch up a little bit with these folks. Uh, James calls this wisdom later in chapter 3, when we get to it, he calls it a wisdom from above. And so here's, I've read a lot about wisdom this week, and um, here's a helpful summary, I think, about what biblical wisdom is. Biblical wisdom, someone said, is about living a life that responds correctly to reality. Biblical wisdom is about living a life that responds correctly to reality. To be wise is to live daily life in light of reality. Now, you see, we tend to say, well, James, if you think that I can count this trial as an occasion for joy, then you're the one not living in reality, buddy. I'm living in reality, and it hurts. But James... James is saying, no, the only way you can count your trials as joy is to live in the light of reality, of what's real. Then, then what's real, James? What, are you, what reality are you talking about? And James' readers would understand that biblical wisdom means this. This is the way one writer put it. Biblical wisdom means that to the extent that anyone is wise, he sees himself he sees the world around him, and he sees God for what they truly are. A wise life is lived with, not against, the grain of reality that God has created. So reality is what God says is real. And over and over again, the Old Testament tells us where this true wisdom begins. Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. Proverbs, again, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. And then the opposite of wisdom is this. Psalm 14 and 53 say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So track with me here. Let's understand what James is saying. In order for me to see uh, and count it as joy when trials come my way, I need, I need wisdom that tells me that above and beyond these trials and the pain I feel is the reality of a God to whom I belong, whom I worship and adore, whose holiness and power and love and grace make my lips quiver and my knees knock. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding how to live according to reality. So reality begins with him, and when trials threaten to cloud my vision, I must begin with him. 
the King Solomon, who wrote Proverbs and he wrote Ecclesiastes. He wrote Ecclesiastes. It's, it's a whole book about this. At the end of his life, Solomon set out to contemplate and compile all that he had learned about wisdom. And this is what he concluded at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. He said, the end of the matter, all has been heard. In other words, you've heard all that I've had to say so far on the matter. Here's the bottom line. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. In other words, here's the end of the matter. Reality starts with God and whatever God wants us to be and do. And so in this book, Solomon said, uh, he used two phrases to describe two ways of living your life. One is reality and the other isn't. He used these two phrases. The one, one of them was the phrase, under the sun. And the other phrase was, under the heavens. And uh, my friend T.M. Moore, who... Uh, is an expert on Ecclesiastes, said this. By under the sun, Solomon means a life lived only with reference to this material world, as though things and people and activities and experiences and the passage of time made up the only existence we can know. So in other words, the only thing that is real is what the sun reveals. The only thing that's real is what is under the sun. What the sun shines on is what's real. It's just purely this material world. And that's how a lot of people live their lives. And Solomon concluded that this kind of life of just living under the sun is meaningless, he said. It's just a chasing after the wind. And, and he said, if this is all that reality is, then you're, then you're suffering, or I'm concluding from this, that if that's all that reality is, is what is under the sun, then your suffering and your trials also have no ultimate meaning. But, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, that reality is more than what's under the sun, it's what's under the heavens. Living life under the heavens requires us to think outside the sun. There's more to reality than what the sun shines upon. We, we have to get a higher perspective that can only come from the one who made the sun. One who's not only outside the sun, but is outside of all creation and has his throne in heaven. You really are living in reality when you're living under the heavens where God is enthroned. And so my friend T.M. explained this. He said, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon's getting to the heart of his argument. Life makes sense only when it's lived under the heavens. That is, with an eye to God's final control and authority in a reverent, trustful relationship with him. Everything has its place in God's plan and economy, even though we humans cannot expect to understand it all perfectly. We must learn to live by faith, to trust in God's goodness and wisdom, and to be content with whatever he is pleased to bring, in, bring us in this life. 
Thus, we will find our truest happiness and highest sense of meaning and purpose. So, trying to help us understand what James's readers already understood about wisdom. Wisdom is about living in the reality, living under the heavens where God reigns. James is saying, that's the wisdom you lack. That's the wisdom you and I need if we're going to count it all joy that there's a person who's working out his good purpose for our pain. So we said there were two questions. What do I need? I need wisdom. I need God's wisdom. Now, how do I get it? Before I answer that question, I want to say this. When I typically have read this part of James where he says, if you lack wisdom, ask for it, God will give it. I have typically read that as when I'm in pain, when I'm in hard place, hard things are going on, and I need to know what to do. I ask God for wisdom, and he's going to tell me how to get out of this mess. That's just how I've typically read that verse. Now, it is true that if you need practical answers and solutions and escapes, ask God. He's the one who can give them to you. Um, But I don't think that's what James is completely after here. I think James wants us to start with, ask for the wisdom of understanding who we are in relation to the God who is over everything and is concerned with who we are and what we're going through. You remember James said, this is a, the trials are a test, a testing of your faith. God's after strengthening, as I said, purifying and fortifying and beautifying your relationship with him. That's what your faith is about. That's what he's after. So wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, with this relationship with the Lord. But Old Testament biblical wisdom is also more than that. Uh, I put a quote in your bulletin um, that Tremper Longman, who is a, an Old Testament scholar who's particularly uh, an expert in Old Testament wisdom, he says, yeah, there, there's three kinds of Old Testament biblical wisdom. There's the theological kind, that's fear of the Lord, but then there's an ethical kind of wisdom, and it's wisdom on how to be a person in relationship with other people, um, how to be uh, a God-fearing, God's law-abiding person, and how to be in relationship with others. So that's an ethical kind of wisdom. And then there's a practical kind of wisdom where it's skills for living. How do I I live in this life? So Proverbs is full of all kinds of wisdom about uh, finances and things like that. Now, I'm I'm just, this is sort of a parenthesis in this whole sermon because James actually is going to get to the ethical and the practical kind of wisdom. Um, 
there's all kinds of wisdom that James has about our relationships, our ethical, how do we live as good people in good relationship with others. And then he's also going to get into some practical wisdom, like when you're planning to go on a business trip, what do you, how, do you, how should you think about that? That's coming in chapter 4. So it's not that James is not saying we should, we should, uh, James is not saying we shouldn't ask for uh, the practicality kind of uh, wisdom. But it starts with a fear of God. It starts with a relationship with God that will then shape how I live ethically in relationships with others and then also shape how I live practically in the choices that I make in my daily life. Are you with me there? I don't have time to get into all those. Uh, James is actually going to do that for us this fall as we go. We'll get into ethical and practical wisdom. But it begins, the fear of the Lord is the beginning. So it's our relationship with the Lord is where that, all the wisdom starts. So that's what I'm focusing on this morning, just so that you understand. That's a little pull the curtains apart so you can see what's happening behind the sermon. Now, what do I need? I need wisdom that begins with my relationship with God. How do I get it? The rest of this is... is pretty quick. How do I get wisdom? James says, pray. Well, there you go, pastor, with your typical Sunday school answer. You got to pray. Friends, I'm going to say it again. Prayer is not just some religious ritual that we do because we're religious people. Prayer is relationship with God. It's communion, communion and communication with the living God. We talk to him. So James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. In fact, James is saying, keep asking God. Keep talking to him. He's echoing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount again, where Jesus said, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And James has to command. This is another one of those commands that we talked about last week. James is saying, ask God. It's not a suggestion. It's talk to God so that you can get wisdom in the midst of your trials. And that sounds obvious and simple, but sometimes, friends, I just don't pray. Sometimes when I'm in the middle of a trial, I just inwardly churn and churn and worry and stew and try, try to figure out, try to make sense instead of talking to God about it. And I know some of you are like that too. And, but then you may say, well, I do pray. But what do I pray for? Do I pray for answers, explanations, solutions, relief? Sure, all of those things are fine to ask God for, but it's not necessarily what James is asking, saying to ask for here. He says, ask for wisdom to see that everything that's going on is under the heavens, where God sees it all, God hears it all, God knows it all, and God works it all for the good of completing his work in you, until you are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, looking and loving and living like his son Jesus. James is saying, ask for a wisdom that starts with how you relate to God in the middle of your pain. 
Get straight to the heart of it all, he says. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then when trials come, begin with your relationship with him. So often when trials come, I disengage from God instead of engaging with God. And Tim Keller once said this. He said, let your suffering be the hammer that drives you deeper into Jesus. It's very possible, he said, to let it drive you from him. But let your trials be the hammer that drives you deeper into him. That's wisdom. So James says, talk to him. Keep asking God for his wisdom to see your trials in the light of what he says is real. But then James says to remember what is real about God. Even as you're talking to him and asking him, remember what's real about the heart of this one you're talking to. He says, if if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Remember this reality about God. He gives generously. He's waiting for you to ask for wisdom. And and what does it mean that he gives to all without reproach? What does that mean? It literally means that he's not going to mock you for asking. He's not going to shame you for being needy. I love this. Uh, I have this research tool that I use uh, when I'm studying James and what it does is it pulls together what a lot of the major commentators have said about a particular passage or piece of the passage and it kind of summarizes them all for me so that I can see oh this is these are all the ways that people think about this particular thing And normally this is not something I would share with you because it's like too much. But this was so beautiful, I thought it would be helpful. This is a collection, not everything, but just a collection of what commentators said about this uh, piece. God gives generously and without reproach when you ask him for wisdom. Listen to what they said. It means God does not scold them for bothering him. He does not bring up conscious or unconscious sins and failures or say that you're unworthy to approach him. He does not scold you about your lack of wisdom. He doesn't grant the request and then criticize you for asking. He doesn't scold because we've improperly used previous gifts that he's given us, and he doesn't rebuke us for repeated lack of wisdom. What horrible father would say to his son or his daughter who comes and asks for wisdom, you idiot, you asked me that last week. That's a horrible father. Our father doesn't do that. He does not complain about the size of the gift that is asked. Oh, you're asking too much. You're too needy. He, your father doesn't say that. I just, I just love that. You are not too much for him, you're not too needy for him. Ask him, ask him, ask him. You have to know the heart of the one you're asking. And you have to know that it's good and generous and overflowing 
and ready at the moment to give you the wisdom you need in the trials you have. And then lastly, James deals with how we should ask God for this wisdom. Verses 6 and 7, he says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And you can just see that, can't you? That's what James is trying to get you to see. The one who doubts is just tossed to and fro with every wind and wave. No anchor. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, when I read this, I wonder, man, James, that's a shift. Is he contradicting himself? I mean, he, he just said God will give generously. But now is he saying there's a secret code you got to have to get God to give you what he says he's going to give generously and without reproach? And the secret code is you got to ask with perfect faith and no doubting at all. So God's ready. He's, he's generous. He, he, he doesn't want it. He'll give you wisdom if you ask for it. But you got to do it just right or you don't get nothing. I don't think that's what James is saying. So there's got to be something more. And the something more is when we understand uh, some of the meaning of these words that are translated doubt. Sometimes we lose some of the color in the translation. Um, in verse 6, doubting is, is talking about being torn. This is not a, an intellectual, psychological, um, I wonder, <laughs> I, I do wonder sometimes, is God going to do what he's going to, what he said he's going to do? I, I have doubts. I struggle. Okay. This is not talking about that kind of doubting. It's talking about being torn between two things. And then in verse 7, he goes on, and he talks about a double-minded man. Some scholars believe that James actually made up this word, double-minded. Um, in, in Greek, it's kind of like dipsyche. It's two psyches, two-souled, double-hearted a double-hearted person. So what he's saying here is not that you have to have everything perfectly figured out and that you, you don't have any concerns about whether God's going to give you wisdom when you ask for it. You might, but the, the point is your heart isn't torn between God and someone else. You're coming to him to ask. Let me get somebody better to help us understand this. Tim Keller said it this way. He said, these verses throw many readers into great, great anxiety because it looks on the surface as if James is saying we must have absolute psychological certainty in our minds as we petition God. That's not what he's talking about. He defines doubt in verse 8 as being double-minded. Uh, like I said, two psyches, two-hearted. 
This is what it means. It means not that you're perfect or morally pure or devoid of any uncertainty. It means that you've made a decision that God is your God, and you're going to ditch all competing concerns the moment that you discern you have them. It means to take hold of Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. I'll, I'll add to that. It's the disciples when so many uh, left Jesus in John chapter 6, and Jesus said to the disciples, are you going to leave too? And Peter said, where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. It's not that the disciples didn't have some questions and still didn't wonder about Jesus, but it's that their hearts were committed to, well, you're the only one that I can go to. You're the only one who has the words of eternal life. That's what James is describing here. It's coming to God wholeheartedly. It's coming to him, trusting that he's enthroned in the heavens and all that's going on in my life is under the heavens, under his sovereign rule. It's coming to him, trusting that his heart is good and that all he chooses to do in my life is also good. And so I, I pray and I say, Father, I'm bringing all that I know of myself, including my doubts, to all that I know of you. And I'm saying, give me the wisdom to see my trials the way you see them and to trust that you know how, best how to use them for your glory, God, for my good, for the good of those that you've called me to serve. And yes, that you know even how to use them for my gladness. And friends, James is describing to us the kind of asking God for wisdom and praying to God that Jesus prayed. And we can go back again and again and again to the Garden of Gethsemane where he was on his knees crying out with loud cries to the Father, sweating drops of blood because he was under such distress, and saying, Father, please take this cup from me. I, this trial, please, Father, take this trial from me. It's not that Jesus just ignored the pain and said, eh, no big deal. He felt it. It scared him. It hurt him. And then his prayer concludes with, but not what my will, but yours. That's wisdom. <laughs> That's wisdom. That's Jesus. And he is the wisdom that we are promised. Um, Paul said, Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ has become to us wisdom from God. So friends, when you meet trials of various kinds, ask for wisdom, but understand, and this is the good news, that wisdom is a person, and his name is Jesus. Ask that you might have him, know him, depend on him, adore him, walk with him, be strengthened by him, and to become shaped like him, because you're being shaped by him. Father, that's what you tell us to pray for when we're in pain.
because you know, you know what's real. And you know us, and you know what you're up to in us. So though it's, it's a hard word, we hear James in his strong exhortation. If you lack wisdom, ask him, ask him, ask him. Turn your whole heart to him and ask him to help you see things the way he sees them. Father, you have promised you would do this and you have given us Jesus, who we celebrate now in this supper. In Christ's name I pray, amen.